Shalom, this is Rabbi Tom and Davis Hart from Beth Elohim Messianic Synagogue bringing you commentary on Parasha number 16, this is Bashlach, after he had let go. And this is found in Shemot or Exodus 13, 17 through 17, 27. If you have any questions or comments concerning this uh, commentary, or if there's a subject you'd like me to explore and uh, create a podcast on that subject, please go to our website at rabdavis.org and click the link, Ask the Rabbi, and post your comments, and I'll be happy to get back with you. So the rabbis teach that Israel entered into the covenant with God by three rites, circumcision, immersion, and sacrifice. In this week's Padishah, we're going to explore Israel's mikvah, that is immersion or baptism. With the incident of the final plague and all the events of Passover, or Pesach, Israel had now experienced redemption. They had left Egypt. As they approached the sea, God was about to take them through the symbolic event that would demonstrate that reality. In 1 Corinthians 10, Rav Shaul, that's Paul, discusses this mikvah, and he said, that, quote, our forefathers were all under the cloud, and they all passed through the sea. They were all immersed into Moshe in the cloud and in the sea, unquote. The mikvah in the Torah always symbolizes a change in status. When a leper was cleansed, he was mikvah. An unclean individual immersed himself as part of the cleansing process. Israel had undergone the greatest change of status there is. They changed from being a powerless group of slaves to the holy, unique people of Almighty God. Under the Renewed Covenant, the mikvah has much the same meaning. It symbolizes our change in status from sinful, unredeemed individuals to co-heirs with our Messiah, part of the holy nation, and the royal priesthood. This is found in 1 Peter 2.9, by the way. And included among the righteous remnant of Israel. So how do the mikvah, Torah, and Messiah, our redemption, fit together? The Messiah's mikvah was to fulfill all righteousness. What does that mean? Righteousness is doing what is right, and in our context, doing what is right in the eyes of God. Torah was given to show us that God thinks is right, so part of the reason Yeshua was mikvah was in obedience to God's commands, fulfilling his duty under Torah as Messiah. Even more is that the mikvah symbolizes the covenant of Torah. Now back to Rav Shaul's exposition. He says that they were immersed into Moshe. Now Moshe in the writings of the Talmudim and in the words of Yeshua himself is often used to symbolize Torah, i.e. Moshe and the prophets. Therefore part of what Shaul is saying is that Israel was mikvahed as a symbol of their taking on the yoke of the mitzvah. Now they had taken on the yoke of heaven through their experience of redemption. Because they are our forefathers, for Jew and Gentile alike, in the renewed covenant, these things happen to provide us an example. Our mikvah experience includes this as well. It's symbolic of our entrance into the redeemed community of God, Israel, with all the privileges, like salvation, covenant, blessings, etc., and the responsibilities, mitzvah. Rav Shaul's Midrash not only provides us an example, but also a warning. The mikvah is symbolic of a redemption experience, an entrance into the redeemed community, and is to be taken very seriously. Shaul warns us not to be like some of them, some of the Israelites who came out of Egypt, who grumbled and rebelled and experienced God's judgment. They may have come through the sea, but they had not experienced circumcision of the heart. For them, mikvah was just getting wet. 
We need to constantly be on our guard to make sure our mikvah experience is not just a dunk in a river, but a truly life-changing experience, an experience of death and life. The mikvah is symbolic of our entrance into God's unique covenant community. If we don't uphold our end of the covenant, we can expect to be judged and judged severely. We do not want God's name to be blasphemed before the world on account of us. He does not look on the smearing of his name very kindly. But Rav Shaul ends with a promise. It may be difficult to live as the redeemed people of God and adhere to the covenant, but God is faithful and does not command or allow things that are impossible for us and will always provide us the way and strength to stand for truth and righteousness and thus make our Abba proud. Ahavtaraz out of Shoftim. This is Judges 5, 1 through 31. The events described in this scripture are very similar to those in Abadishah. In both narratives, the Israelites were suffering under an oppressive ruler whose reign was becoming increasingly cruel. I would like you to keep in mind this lesson's applicability for the very near future as our country is pushed into a socialistic paradigm in preparation for the anti-Messiah. In our Parashah and Haftarah, God sent a savior. The oppressors were humbled and destroyed by unmistakable miracles. The nation Israel was uplifted and elevated to a new plane of recognition of God and devotion to serving him. Devorah, a woman and judge of Israel, by the way, provides an excellent example of the faith and holiness of women who follow God's commands out of love. There is nothing, and I'll repeat, there is nothing in Scripture to support the Christian teaching and position that women are to remain silent in the church and are not qualified to take leadership roles. This is a complete misunderstanding of that scripture about wives being silent in the synagogue. And keep in mind, it says wives, not women. Other examples include Yochebed and Miriam, who were instrumental in saving Moshe as an infant. Miriam, who led a song with tambourines and a song of praise when God parted the waters of the sea, because it was no doubt in their minds that God had and would perform miracles for his people. In Ahavtara, it's Devorah, who was the prime mover in the battle and in the song. That's right out of the Kumash. Our Brit Kadasha, refreshed, renewed covenant portion, is out of 2 Corinthians 8. And I will read that, and it says, Now, brothers, we must tell you about the grace God has given the congregations in Macedonia. Despite severe trials, and even though they're desperately poor, their joy has overflowed in a wealth of generosity. I'll tell you, they have not merely given according to their means, but of their own free will, they have given beyond their means. They begged and pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service of God's people. Also, they didn't do this in the way we'd expected, but first they gave themselves to the Lord, which means by God's will to us. All this has led us to urge Titus to bring the same gracious gift to completion among you, since he has already made a beginning of it. Just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in diligence of every kind, and in your love for us, see that you excel in this gift too. I'm not issuing an order. Rather, I'm testing the genuineness of your love against the diligence of others. For you know how generous our Lord Yeshua the Messiah was. For your sakes he impoverished himself, even though he was rich, so that he might make you rich by means of his poverty. As I say in regard to this matter, I am only giving an opinion. A year ago, you were not only the first to take action, but the first to want to do so. Now it would be to your advantage to finish what you started, so that your eagerness and wanting to commence 
The project may be matched by your eagerness to complete it, as you contribute from what you have. For if the eagerness to give is there, the acceptability of the gift will be measured by what you have, not by what you don't have. It's not that relief of others should cause trouble for you, but that there should be a kind of reciprocity. At present, your abundance can help those in need, so that when you are in need, their abundance can help you. Thus, there is reciprocity. It is, as the Tanakh says, he who gathered much had nothing extra, and he who gathered little had nothing lacking, unquote. <clears throat> So this is a look at Shaul, or Paul as a practical man. It shows many aspects of his personality, aspirations, and psychology. This should inform us in evaluating him in his writings. In my opinion, Paul was not devoid of pride and manipulation to seek his ends. And I say this not to degrade his contribution to the scriptures and his mission to God, but to illustrate that he was also susceptible to human foibles. Before proceeding, we need to understand the background of these two chapters, 8.1 through 10.1, appealing to the Corinthians to give generously to their brothers in Judea. In addition, this section is connected with two themes enunciated elsewhere in this letter, the importance of the Corinthians not receiving the grace of God in vain, and Shaul's defense of his own ministry. The occasion for moving into the subject is Macedonia, which he began discussing at 7.5. Take special note of Shaul's fundraising message, which have much in common with those of today. But notice that all, though he has plenty of practical advice about practical matters, he brings everything, the gift itself, the motivations for giving, the remarks about the fundraising committee, if you will, the allusions to the reactions of the recipients, even the, quote, Jewish mother guilt trips, unquote, which he lays on the Corinthians, into the service of glorifying God. He stirs up the Corinthians' envy of virtue by presenting congregations in nearby but competitive Macedonia as a standard of comparison. Despite trials and poverty, they have generous beyond their means without being nagged. They even pleaded for the privilege of giving. Further, their giving was not casual, but an act of devotion to the Lord. That's verse 5. Shaul's follow-up of this earlier nudging is to be carried out by an experienced man in the field, Titus. Shaul again compliments the good qualities of the potential givers, but says in effect, put your money where your mouth is. Here is a motivation for giving unique to believers in the Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. He was rich in that he had divine glory before the world existed and was in the form of God so that equality with God was available to him. Yet for your sakes he impoverished himself, so that he might make you rich with the righteousness of God imputed to you. You should imitate his generosity in this more mundane way. It's tempting to see Shaul as a Jewish mother, only giving an opinion, as he urges mature expression of initial zeal as being to your advantage. You should not be dissuaded by poverty or by fear that your gift will be inadequate. And relief for others should not cause trouble for you. Rather, there should be reciprocity, as when the Israelites were in the desert and each gathered just as much manna as he needed. Now, the advance we have on that today is that if you give $10, you'll receive $100 in return. This appeal to the modern giver who's been raised in a society of materialism is as much a technique of Paul as the aforementioned scripture. Was Paul a prosperity preacher? I submit he was, but the promised reward was far and above 
any monetary return. Shabbat Shalom.